Good morning, everyone. Okay. Well, today we are going to, uh, we're moving forward. We're moving on from the third vision uh, that Zechariah has to his fourth vision uh, in chapter 3. Before I read uh, that text, please uh, join me in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there is a, an old prayer that, that goes uh, something like this, that, Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us. These, Lord God, are only possible through the work of your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is also possible through the work of your Holy Spirit, who in giving us a new heart and in transforming our mind, enables us, Lord, not only to comprehend your word, but then gives us the power to perform it in such a way as to bring glory to you and to our Lord Jesus Christ, to impact the lives of our neighbor and of our family. And then ultimately, Lord, we are only able to do this because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is only because of his atoning sacrifice because of his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to your right hand of the majesty on high, his consistent and eternal intercession as our great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in all weaknesses, yet the scripture tells us is without sin. Because of Jesus, Lord God, we now come with confidence and boldness to the throne of grace, to receive mercy and to find grace in time of need. And in truly, Lord God, uh, in the day in which we live, we uh, certainly need mercy, we need grace, as does our world, our neighbor <clears throat> as well, Lord God. So we pray that the lesson we learn of here in Zechariah 3, not only would continue to encourage us to serve you with greater fervency and faithfulness, but would also increase our zeal to see others come to know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, his amazing and wonderful grace, and to worship you as the truly, truly holy one who is the Lord of all. Father, we ask now your presence to be among us, for we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> In this third vision, which follows really immediately after the, the second vision, there's no break as there was, let's say, between uh, the, uh, the second and third vision, chapter 1 and chapter 2. So if you were to keep this in context, you would hear Zechariah say, Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. That's verse 13 of chapter 2. And then Zechariah says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. 
So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. We come to this third vision, and we are in a a heavenly court scene. Joshua, the high priest, is uh, assembled uh, along with the heavenly host uh, before the angel of the Lord. And before I uh, unpack the the vision that Zechariah has, I I want to um, remind us of the, the quote that I began last Sunday's message with from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, just to sort of round out why I wanted to include that and why I want to include it again. And so that book was originally published in 1982. It's a collection of 14 essays touching on the themes of time, nature, memory, and of course, God. Uh, the quote that I'm going to read to you is from her essay, An Expedition to the Pole, And it fits in the context of the fact that last week we talked about God not being safe, but being good. So just to remind ourselves of what Dillard says as as it befits this uh, uh, text here. Why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs fully sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return." And it's that last line that I want to draw our attention to that really sort of comes to the, if you will, the fruition in this vision that Zechariah has. The sleeping God may awake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us where we can never return. Because as that second chapter ends, remembering that paradox of, that blessed paradox, that fear-inducing, graciously comforting paradox of the fact that God is not safe, but He is good, We see at the end of Zechariah's third vision, the Lord not being safe. It ends with this command for silence. Because the Lord has roused himself from his holy dwelling. That from all appearances, even to Israel itself, God has somehow been slumbering. That he has been asleep at the switch for 70 years while Israel languished in captivity to the Babylonians and then the Medes and now the Persians. But here, this vision ends with this sense that no, 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 no. God has been paying attention all along. He has been watching history unfold at His command and at His direction. And now, 
rather than simply being indirectly, in, if you will, in charge of these things, he is going to rise and now take direct control of the events that are going to transpire, not only in the immediate context, but also in the future, as he has also had his hand on the wheel in the past. And so the command to be silent anticipates that God is going to rise to act in judgment. And specifically in the context of Zechariah, to rise in judgment against the nations that have plundered his people, that he is going to plunder them, punishing them, at the same time gathering them into the covenant community as well. So the expectation at the end of that third vision is that God is going to rise in judgment. So as we come to the fourth vision, we anticipate that we will see the scene of judgment taking place. That the Lord who watches over Israel, the one who neither slumbers nor sleeps, is now in fact rising to defend Jerusalem by judging the nations that have defeated her. However, as the fourth vision begins, it is not the nations we see God rising to judge. Rather, we see Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and the Satan at his right hand to accuse him. You can read more, find out more about Joshua and another interesting character which we'll come to in a little bit named Zerubbabel, which is a very fun name to say. Zerubbabel. You read about them in Haggai and the important roles that they have in the reconstruction and rebuilding and restoration of Jerusalem. So what's going on here? Why is it that God, rather than rising to judge the nations, is instead calling Joshua, the high priest, into his presence, apparently to judge him? Well, in a, a very a good commentary on uh, Zechariah, um, a man by the name of Ralph Smith breaks it down like this, that in the first three visions of Zechariah, the focus of those visions is on comforting Zion uh, and assuring the returnees that God does, in fact, have a plan for Jerusalem and the people of Israel, that he is going to fulfill his promise to give them a hope and a future. Promises that were made through Jeremiah, promises that are made through the prophet Ezekiel, promises that are made through the prophet Isaiah. In, ver in, ver in visions 4 through 5, the focus now shifts from comfort to Zion in general, to very specifically dealing with the religious and political leaders that God is installing to lead and uh, shepherd this new restored community in, uh, in Jerusalem. So as the fourth vision unfolds, God is, is simply saying, look, I have gathered all of Israel into Jerusalem. I have reassembled my people into the holy city. And now that I have done that, I am going to teach them what it means to follow me. The holy city needs holy citizens. The holy city needs a holy priesthood to lead a holy community. This is the way God works. He redeems, he saves, then he instructs. He rescues people. And then he teaches them what it means to be rescued and how to live as holy, redeemed, and rescued people. So having gathered everyone into the holy city, 
the holy city requiring holy citizens, God is now going to show them the depth, the breadth, the height, and the length of his grace. That as he had indeed once sent the nations to punish them, he is now going to send to them a holy priesthood represented by Joshua and a holy government represented by Zerubbabel, and he will lead them into the future that he has planned for them. So that his grace will not only restore them as a nation, but their grace will also re-equip them for the mission that he has for Israel, which is to be light unto the nations. They are to be salt and light, not only to their neighbor, but to the nations around them. And Zechariah's third vision confirms the Lord is not safe. His fourth vision confirms the fact that he is also good. But from the start, we see something is wrong with this picture. That instead of um, the, the, the temple, um, instead of standing in the temple serving God, where do we see Joshua? We see Joshua standing in the presence of the angel of the Lord, the, the, the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if Jesus is sitting, if you have seen pictures of the, the recent trial taking place in Kenosha, Jesus is sitting in the, in the judge's chair, and Joshua is standing before him. And on the right side of him, at the prosecuting attorney's table, is the accuser of the brethren. This is not what we expect. We don't expect to see Joshua the high priest on trial. We don't expect as well to see the Satan standing in the heavenly assembly, which is a scene very reminiscent and very similar to that of what takes place in the Old Testament book of Job, that as the heavenly council appears before God in heaven, there is the accuser of the brethren among them. And just as, Job challenges, just as Satan challenges Job's integrity, Satan does the same thing here with Joshua. He is accusing him. Satan is of high crimes and misdemeanors. We know that because the third thing that's wrong with this picture is that Joshua, rather than wearing all of his priestly finery, and if you want to get a picture of that, go back into Exodus and, and read there about the, the beautiful garments, embroidered garments that the priests would wear, particularly the high priest with the, the gold-plated uh, plate on his chest with the jewels in them and the purple and the blue and the turban on his head that says, described holy to the Lord on it. And rather than being dressed in all of that, right, Joshua is wearing filthy garments. The, the spiritual representative of Israel is wearing clothes that are stained and soiled with sin. His as well as those of the nation. And the thing about this then, of course, is that Joshua's sin is, uh, he can't hide it. He's wearing it. It's undeniable. It's, his guilt is inescapable. So he's standing there in filthy garments, realizing now that in the presence of a holy God, a God who is not safe, Joshua is in trouble. But we also know that God is good. Because God is rich in mercy, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. God is also gracious, and being gracious, Joshua is about to discover the breadth and length, the height and depth of God's grace. 
In the words of the old hymn, which I believe we will sing at the end of our service uh, today, uh, Joshua's only hope of pardon is grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Zechariah's third vision had three scenes. His fourth vision has two scenes. In scene one, which is what we'll study today, verses one through five, uh, the Lord takes away Joshua's sin and guilt by virtue of being gracious to him. That the holy city, remember, must have holy citizens. And holy citizens must have a holy priesthood representing them before the Lord. And then in scene two, which we'll take up next time, verses 6 through 10, the Lord then tells Joshua, in the words of the scripture, solemnly assures him in the same way that God assures David in 1 Samuel 7 that he will never cease to have a man on the throne. God solemnly assures Joshua, you will never fail to have someone representing the, the, the priesthood before the people if you are faithful to walk in my ways. That you will be granted the right of access into my presence. And they will use then their ministry to prepare the way for the, the coming servant of the Lord who is referred here to as the branch. So in setting up uh, today's sermon, if you want to look at what the, the main idea, the big idea is this, that the grace of God is greater than any accusation Satan can bring against us. If grace is greater than all our sin, if grace is strong enough to pardon us completely, then the grace of God is greater than any accusation Satan can bring against us. And that grace means that God is for us even when he has every reason to be against us. And that grace means that God forgives us by taking away our sins. So let's look at that first point, verses 1 through 3, where we read that grace it means God is for us even when he has every reason to be against us. So the first three verses of uh, Zechariah 3. This is what uh, Zechariah sees. He says, He showed me, the angel who is leading him through these visions showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and uh, the Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this, meaning Joshua, a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Just a little background, too, to sort of round out the picture of who this fellow Joshua is, because he, he just comes out of nowhere in the text. He is a, he's born into a priestly family. His genealogy can be traced, in other words, back to Aaron, the brother of Moses. Aaron was the first high priest in Israel. Uh, Joshua's grandfather was a man named Zadok, and he served under, uh, as high priest under King David. If you know anything about David's history, you know that there was a rebellion against him. And uh, one of the, the high priests at the time, a man named Abiathar, betrayed David, and he sided with the rebellion. When David put down the rebellion, he takes Zadok and makes him the high priest instead, because Zadok remained faithful to the king. Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, praises the descendants of Zadok for their faithfulness during the exile which is key. And then in Ezra and Haggai, 
Joshua and our other favorite characters, Zerubbabel, uh, they emerge as key leaders of the new community. Joshua on the religious side, Zerubbabel on the political side. He becomes the governor. And they worked, the two of them together, imagine that, right? Governor and priest working together for the good of the community to restore the priesthood as well as to restore the spiritual and political life of the nation. However, despite all of that, despite a legendary legacy and a legendary line of heredity, Joshua stands on trial. And to his right is literally the Satan, the accuser. It's, it's, it's not clear that this is Satan in the flesh, but a representative for sure of the one who accuses the brethren day and night. He is the prosecuting attorney. And it's interesting that he stands on the right side. You have probably seen enough Law and Order episodes when you look at the screen, where is the prosecuting attorney sits? He always sits on, looking from the judge, on this side of the courtroom, on the right side, making all the charges and accusations, just hurling one after another at uh, Joshua. We learn a couple of things from this, that Satan is real, and we know his job. His job is to accuse. His job is to slander. His job is to malign. His goal in doing so is to separate us from the Lord and the Lord from us. And the Bible refers to him by many names. The devil, deceiver, tempter, a roaring lion, a dragon. He persecutes God's people. He tempts them. And he does not fight fair. In Zechariah 3, if you want to see Satan in the role of, a, of an attorney, a well-dressed attorney, he wears his self-righteous malice like, a, like an Armani suit. He is the accuser-in-chief, and he incites and recites an endless list of accusations against Joshua. Martin Luther, we celebrated Reformation Sunday a couple of weeks ago. Martin Luther, well known for his many battles with, with Satan. You read his journals, read his books, his commentaries. In describing Satan's role as accuser, Luther wrote, The way of the devil is to greatly inflate one's sin, magnifying it and making God's judgments horrible. And so that's what Satan does. What he do, and to make matters worse, rather than just accusing Joshua of his sin, he is making Joshua complicit in the sins of the entire nation. See, you're the representative, the spiritual representative of Israel, Joshua, so it's not only your sins that I'm accusing you of, but the sins of everyone else that you're responsible for as spiritual head. And so Joshua is being arraigned before the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, bearing the double burden of a double accountability, his sins plus the sins of the nation. Does this sound familiar? in terms of the things that Joshua is made to bear, because this whole scene, as we're going to see, points forward to another one who stands in the role of great high priest. And we'll just hold it off in abeyance. That's out there, because that's what's being strongly pointed to here. To make matters worse for Joshua, right? again, you know that if, if you are to appear in court as a defendant, um, you, you don't show up wearing your, your orange jumpsuit. You show up in as nice a suit as the prosecuting attorney, if possible.
But Joshua doesn't show up well-dressed. He doesn't show up in his priestly finery. We're told that he is wearing filthy garments. And the, the Hebrew word that is translated filthy is, well, it, it's, it's, more, it's very kind. <laughs> because the, the, the word filthy there describes, well, the, what happens to your clothing if you were to crawl through a sewer? That's the, the, the essence of the, of the contamination that Joshua is wearing. It clings to him. So he not only looks filthy, he smells filthy. He is unclean and he is unholy. And so Satan's accusations now have a double purpose. An acknowledgement of the filth of Joshua's clothing. Joshua is both unworthy of being a high priest and he is unfit to serve as a high priest. So there is now then a subtext to Satan's accusations. There's always a subtext to Satan's accusations. Because he's standing, Joshua is, before the presence of the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ, Joshua unholy, unfit, and by accusing Joshua of all of these sins, of being unholy, unworthy, and so forth, Satan is in fact challenging the holiness and the character of God. Because hidden inside his accusations is the false premise that if the angel of the Lord is willing to defend a sinner like Joshua, then is he not by such action disqualifying himself as being also unfit and unholy to serve as a servant of the Lord? And if this is true, does this then not make Satan a more worthy and a more holy servant because he is pointing out Joshua's sin, thus proving to be the true defender of the holiness of God's character and of God's temple? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, here is Satan, the original Karen. pointing out the fact that if you let this person stand in your midst, if you accept him back into his ministry, you are therefore unfit to serve in that role as servant of the Lord. But guess what? Since I have noted all of the wrong things he has done to you, this makes me more worthy. Is that true? No. Not at all. Why? Because God's grace is greater than all our sin. And God's grace is greater than any accusation Satan can level against us. Remember, Satan can only accuse. The only power he has is of words. Read Genesis 3 and the temptation between Eve and the temptation with Adam. Satan only uses words. There's no threat of intimidation. There's no physical violence that he meets out. It's just words. And here he is using those words in the presence of the one who is not only our judge, but according to our study of 1 John, if you remember that, we have one who is our advocate. So here is the, the, the prosecution making its case to the, to the very one who's going to defend us. And he's going to defend us by standing in our place by taking those filthy garments from Joshua and placing them on himself, and then in exchange, he takes off his righteousness, his finery, and he clothes Joshua with them. 
So that he now gives to Joshua what Joshua does not have, which is holiness, righteousness, and goodness. He gives to us what we do not have. Because let's face it, no one wants to be told when you stand before a holy God, when you're sharing the gospel with someone, you know, you may do a lot of good things, but in God's sight, the right things that you do, the good things that you do, that you want to clothe yourself with, those are like filthy garments. At least that's what the prophet Isaiah says. In Isaiah 64, that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Because rather than condemn Joshua, right? it's interesting that the, the, the angel of the Lord does not deny the fact that Joshua is guilty. But he doesn't condemn him because he knows I will stand in his place and I will bear his guilt. And I will not only bear his guilt, but I will bear the guilt of the entire nation. So we see in this role that, that the angel of the Lord will come and just step down from his throne, from his seat of judgment, and bear judgment himself. And in bearing judgment himself for our sins and the sins of the whole world, he then clothes us with his righteousness, his holiness, and his goodness. This is the picture. And he does so as our great high priest, who not only appears in the presence of the Almighty as high priest, but also as sacrifice. Remember, Jesus is the servant of the Lord who came not to crush Joshua, but to crush Satan by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. So if the Lord is rousing himself from his holy temple to judge the nations, he judges the nations by dying for them. He judges us by dying for us. And then he invites us to look at what happened to him and say, that's what I deserved, but you died in my place, and in exchange for that, I receive grace and mercy and holiness and goodness and righteousness and forgiveness. It's good to know, I quoted this, uh, I think, from last week, that God's grace is so great that it transforms the evidence against us into the very means by which God declares us not guilty. So the evidence that would be hurled against us becomes the very means by which God will forgive us and declare us not guilty. Here's what I mean. That, look, for those whom Satan has... Uh, has bruised with the, the slings and arrows of outrageous accusation. The, the Lord says this in Isaiah 57, 15. I quoted this last week. I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who was of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the contrite of heart. When, when the Lord refers to Joshua as a brand plucked from the fire, the idea is that the fire that he has plucked from is the fire of judgment, the fire of condemnation, the fire of eternal judgment. But God brings him out of that. He plucks him. He reaches in at the risk of, if you will, singeing his own flesh, which, of course, happens at the cross. He plucks him out of the fire. Why? Because the servant of the Lord, according to Isaiah, also says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not extinguish. 
And so he pulls us out of the fire, smoldering, if you will, but then he fans that same fire, not, only, not into a fire of judgment, but into a, a fire of passion and devotion to the Lord Almighty. God's grace, you understand, is for those whose spirit Satan seeks to smother with accusations, but the Lord can revive that, fan, that, that, that smoking log, if you will, into flame. Or as the, the Apostle Paul says in, in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grace of God is greater than any accusation Satan can bring against us. He plucks us as a, a brand from the fire. And that grace then means forgive, God forgives us by taking away our sins, which is the, the imagery here. The verses uh, 4 through 6, just to round off this first section. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, meaning to Joshua, behold, I have taken your, away your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And then Zechariah chimes in, let him put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Do you remember what happened when Adam and Eve, after Adam and Eve sinned? The first thing that happens, the, the scripture says, their eyes were opened, they realized that they were naked. And then when God confronts them about their sin, what does he do? After pronouncing a curse on them and upon the land and upon the serpent, he then clothes them with animal skins. And we have been seeking to clothe ourselves in shame because of our sin ever since. Until the Lord Jesus Christ comes and says, let me take away those filthy animal skins. Let me take away the, the shame that you have. Let me take away the guilt that you have. Let me take away the fear that you have. That you'll never measure up, that you're not good enough, that you'll never be good enough. Let me take all of that from you. Let me bear it to the cross. Let me nail it there. So there it stays forever removed by, the, by my blood and sacrifice. And in exchange, let me give you, let me give you peace of heart, peace of mind, peace with God. Let me give you my righteousness. Let me give you my approval. Let me give you my grace. Let me give you my mercy. Let me show you that in the beloved Christ, you are accepted. Because when you come right down to it, until we trust in Christ, every one of us is wearing filthy garments. Every one of us is a, a smoking log plucked from the fire. That doesn't mean that after coming into relationship with Christ, it doesn't mean we are sinless because we, we still sin, we still disobey, we still feel guilty even though we are not guilty, but we feel guilty. We come to worship here on a Sunday morning, and we sing you know, the opening hymn, we sing the first set of hymns, we go through the, the, the confession, and all the while, perhaps, Satan is whispering in our ear, you hypocrite, you phony, you don't belong here. If, if these people knew what you did last night, they'd throw you out the door. They don't know. And I know, call yourself a Christian, you poser. But then you remember, you listen to those accusations and you remember, I am a brand God plucked from the fire. 
Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I am a new creation in Christ. I am not dressed in filthy rags. I'm not a poser. I am clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You remember verses like these. We're going to lift them on the screen here. Verses like this. You want to sort of arm yourself and, and guard yourself against and shield yourself against the accusations of the enemy. These are good verses not only to meditate on, but also to memorize. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. This is Paul speaking to Christians. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us with its legal demands, uh, uh, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, meaning Christ. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's me, that's you. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still clothed in our filthy garments, Christ died for us. And in Romans 8.1, there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then lastly, one of my favorite texts, Romans 8.31-34. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We sang about that. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What this means is this. Satan can go on accusing. He can go on telling malicious lies. But God, because Christ has died for our sins, doesn't listen to those accusations anymore. He has a permanent gag order on the prosecuting attorney. The only person who hears those accusations is me and you. And the way to deal with them is to say, direct your attention, please, to the cross. Because that's where all of those things have died. The grace of God is greater than any accusation God can bring against you. God is, remember, for us, even when he has every reason to be against us because of Christ's finished work. His grace is greater than all our sin. He, his grace transforms the evidence against us into the means by which he declares us not guilty because his son died for them. When God forgives us our sins, he gives us a new heart, he gives us a heart that is clean and pure. Those, those vestments represent that new life that God has invested us with. He gives us a heart to keep his commands and a new status, forgiven, righteous, good, holy, redeemed, forever. As soon as those filthy garments are removed from Joshua, the angel of the Lord says to him, I have taken away your iniquity. 
and I will clothe you with pure vestments. I have forgiven you. You have a new heart. You have a new mind. He is crowned, if you will, the clean turban. So from head to toe, everything is brand new. Outside, inside. And everything Zechariah sees here points to the finished work of Christ on our behalf as our great high priest. The, <clears throat> the Puritan scholar John Owen captures what this means when he says, it's not enough to say we're not guilty. We must also be perfectly righteous. There's our dilemma. If God had simply said, you're not guilty, that's, that's one thing. But now we have to be righteous. The law must be fulfilled by perfect obedience if we would enter into eternal life. And this, he says, is found only in Jesus. His death reconciled us to God. Now we are saved by his life. The perfect actual obedience that Christ rendered on earth is that righteousness by which we are saved. His righteousness is imputed or credited to me so that I am counted as having perfectly obeyed the law itself. So at the same time Joshua represents Israel, he does anticipate the coming of Christ as our great and permanent high priest. It's, you can almost see like the entire book of Hebrews is based on this one vision. The Joshua points to Jesus as a true, great, and permanent high priest who, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience for dead works to serve the living God. That's Hebrews 9, 14. So Jesus offers himself. He takes our sin. All of this, by the way, is at his initiative. Joshua doesn't ask for this to be done. It is done. That's grace. That's marvelous grace. That's grace that is greater than all our sin. It's grace that can pardon and cleanse within. I uh, referenced Luther earlier, and I'll end with this. Uh, it just seems in, this, in the spirit of uh, the lingering effects of the Reformation, at the height of his confrontation with the Catholic Church, when you remember the Council of Worms, uh, Luther was then kidnapped. He was taken to Wartburg Castle. Uh, he it was a tremendously productive period. He translated the, the New Testament into German in a matter of weeks. Uh, but he also felt himself suffering immensely at the hands of the devil. He would actually have these confrontations, almost visionary confrontations with, uh, with Satan. And he wrote one time to his friend Philip Methuen, May 24th, 1521, about a spiritual depression he experienced, uh, one in which Satan appeared to him with a long scroll um, on which his many sins were written with care, and each one of them read out loud, one by one. All the while, Satan mocked Luther's pathetic desire to serve God, assuring Luther that after all he had done, Luther would end up in hell. And Luther writhed in, in agony until at last he jumped up and cried, I quote, It is true, Satan, and many more sins which I have committed in my life which are known to God. But write this at the bottom of your list. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth from all sin. 
Then grasping an inkwell from his table, Luther threw it at the devil. And I'm told if you go to the Wartburg Castle, that ink stain is there to this day. Here's the thing. Long before Luther rebuked Satan, the Lord rebuked Satan at the cross. Remember, the grace of God is greater than any accusation Satan can bring against you. So the next time Satan tempts you to despair and accuses you of the sin within, do what Luther did. It is true, Satan, and many more sins which I have committed in my life, which are known to God only. But write this at the bottom of your list. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is one continuous story of grace and that we see repeated over and over and over again, incident after incident that points to the finished work of Christ that establishes us as holy, righteous, and good in your sight now and on into eternity. Help us, Lord God, when the enemy would accuse us, and when he does accuse us of sin and unrighteousness, that we would remember that the bottom of that list is written, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has cleansed us from all sin, and we are forgiven. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.